Welcome to Mythos Podcast, a journey through world folklore, region by region, country by country. Here you will experience folk tales and legends through music-accompanied retellings of traditional lore. With brief introductions, the emphasis is on the stories and the rich landscapes and cultures that birth them. Enjoy the riches of the folk imagination. Welcome to Folklorica Baltica, an exploration of folkloric realms in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Goddaughter of the Rock Maidens. The name of the story lit up my imagination, as did the brief outline of a plot in W.F. Kirby's 1895 English translation of famous Estonian tales. In just a few sentences, I sensed a powerful narrative, nature spirits and underworlds, a young girl tutored by powerful female fey folk, and enchantments and serpent king. While my initial scouring for an original Estonian version of the tale turned up nothing, my research journey through Estonian wilderness and folk motifs were full of mystery and discovery. First was the concept of the Haldiad, the Estonian fey folk, beings that have that strange alchemy of human and magical qualities. These are guardian spirits who protect aspects of nature, and to the Haldiad, there are often offering gifts of fire, blood, meat, milk, and grain, and these were often left on what are called cup-marked stones. And the research journey through this terrain was fascinating. Cup-marked stones are boulders that have smallish holes either naturally occurring or that were bored by grieving relatives whose obligation it was to create these holes for the recently dead. It is likely that these stones, in a more ancient sense, are related to agricultural and fertility rites, since it appears that at the annual time of sowing, one of these cut marks or holes was carved into a particular stone. In this research journey, I had the very good fortune of a folklorist named Risto Yarv coming to the rescue and sending me a full version of Goddaughter of the Rock Maidens. It was exciting to receive a story that felt like buried treasure, and this episode feels like its own little offering to the anonymous creativity of the folk. On the same note, I would like to offer my own note of gratitude to Eva, my Lithuanian patron, who has very graciously secured books and resources for me that would have been very expensive to buy here in the UK. Indeed, in bringing the stories of history's anonymous poor to the forefront, I often have to refer to books and resources that can be a bit pricey to obtain or require travel to London or Southampton. If you'd like to help, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. For all of my listeners, consider joining my upcoming Story Heritage webinar on power and powerlessness. The aim is to explore the wisdom and insights of world folklore surrounding this fundamental human experience of power and, of course, powerlessness. If you want to explore our world storytelling heritage, 
to get inspiration for your own creative life and experience the therapeutic powers of story, go to www.mythosstorytelling.com and click on contact where you can register your interest. Again, this is www.mythosstorytelling.com. Please do take a few minutes to register your interest. It really helps to know know, whether or not this is something um, my listeners are interested in and how viable the idea is. And finally, a huge thank you to Estonian musician Mario Nut for permission to use her stunning music in this episode. You can listen to her music and even make an artist donation on Spotify. See the show notes for websites and links. And now, without further ado, I bring you Goddaughter of the Rock Maidens. Part 1. She sought wild strawberries amidst palatial pines whispering against a blue sky. Pines that stood like rugged matriarchs, lined and grooved and solid. Maria, for that was her name, sought the woodland fruit amidst fallen trunks that mothered elegant sprays of fern and curious fungal ripplings of deep black and rich orange. The rotten wood was a placenta for vibrant green moss. It seemed that all life suckled and fed now. And with face turned toward the sun, Maria walked a path lined by birches, which were like fey ladies-in-waiting, leafy tresses floating on the forest breath. Yet, the lush whispers and sighs and calls of the summer woodland seemed to darken a strange pall of silence stopping the mouth of a world that just now suckled and fed in voracious peace. And as Maria approached a grove of gnarled oaks, she heard a grunt of sorts, a male baritone grunt, and she stopped, shuddering. It was like a boar snuffling for acorns, but with syllables, with human utterances. There was mean intent, a kind of corruption of that forest creature whose bulk and power carried all the great hum and substance of the unending forest. Then, Maria heard a scream, a squeal, as if someone were crying for help but their mouth was somehow muffled. It was a discordant and antirhythmic, a high-pitched tear in the flowing peace of the woodland. She could not see the source of the disruption yet and was frightened and confused. Approaching a large boulder, something in her settled a bit when she saw the cut marks, the little holes in the stone, either natural or bored into the stone by relatives of the dead. In the holes were burnt remnants of an offering fire and lovely fresh milk and grain. This passage to the world of ancestral spirits was lovingly maintained. And as Maria heard the noise... She remained close to the offering boulder, feeling safe in a cyclical embrace of ancestral giving and gifting. She cowered behind the stone when she heard another squeal and a thud and a grunt. Silence for a moment, and then a heavy-footed thump, 
thump, thump, which eventually faded. And with the fading, there re-emerged the feeding and play of Mother Forest's many children. Maria stood and began a tiptoe search of the oak grove. There, behind a vast fallen tree trunk, was a heap of linen and limbs and bruise and blood. And Maria cried out and rushed to the poor form. And there was a flurry of hushing and cooing of a rag being dipped in the cool waters of a brook and groaning and more motherly whispering to the woman who lay nearly unconscious. Maria gently wiped the blood from the woman's face whose eyes, speckled with fern green and mulchy brown, flung open. And Maria stared, for there was something in the form and substance of this woman that had all the song and state of rock and mountain. A haldiot, she thought, surely an earth elf. Then the woman spoke, rich and true, as if Maria's simple ministrations had some miraculous healing power. The old man of the forest, the woman whispered, the old man of the forest attacked me. After Maria had tenderly wiped the last of the blood from her face, this woman of earth and rock sat up and smiled, saying nothing as she slipped a gold ring from her finger. Then she took Maria's hand and slipped the gold ring onto Maria's finger and said, There, now we are pledged to each other for life. And Maria felt a stirring in her chest and in her womb, and a lovely warmth took hold of her hands. And the maiden smiled a knowing smile and said, If you give birth to what you now have in your heart, you must receive me with my two younger sisters. Maria nodded in tears from a deep and mysterious well in her being that she did not understand. Tears flooded her eyes. She nodded and smiled, and then she reached into her basket and took hold of fresh summer strawberries, which she gave to the maiden, and the maiden accepted it gratefully. And they sat amidst the forest whisperings and the sweet singing of birds as the maiden ate. Then the maiden said, you've delivered me from loneliness and hunger. I want to repay this good deed to your daughter when she is of age, for this daughter will be more than you can ever imagine. A daughter? Maria repeated, surprised and confused. The maiden nodded. Now go home and tell no one of this meeting. Go about your day and find what you find. So, Maria walked with light and invigorated step through the whispering palatial pines and the birch ladies-in-waiting and returned to her cottage in the clearing, pouring, as she always did, the strawberries into a bowl from the basket, for her husband loved the sight of fresh strawberries when he returned home. But something strange a clink in the bowl, and a flash of silver amidst the lush red of the strawberries. Removing the last remaining berries from the basket, Maria gasped to see silver, silver coins. She sat heavily into a chair holding a strawberry and a silver coin in her palm. And then she wept. She wept for the pain and abundance of life 
and she wept for the blood and the water that all must wade through. And heeding the commands of the maiden, she hid the silver and never told a living soul of her encounter with the forest maiden. When a Haldiad smiles prophecy and gifts abundance in the strawberry basket, it should come as no surprise that life swells and grows with the same staid and constant hum that Mother Forest sings to her many children. Maria's heart brood did indeed take hold in the womb and invisible parts multiplied, remaining hidden in the soil of her being until the swelling of spring life brimmed brimmed to the very edge of Maria's mineral-rich earth. And though winter sharpness and spring flowering battled in her being on the birthing bed, and though she wept for the blood and the water that all must wade through, though she shed and screamed out the blood and water, Maria laughed when this tiny bloom of a girl was placed squalling in her arms. Indeed, when a Haldiad smiles prophecy and gifts abundance in strawberry baskets, it should come as no surprise that the heavens should breathe the blessing of patronage. For shortly after the birth, Maria sat with the little nameless one in her arms and sighed, imagining the forest maiden gathering the baby into her arms and promising herself as godmother, as the life patron of this tiny soul in a vast world. Tears sighed out of her eyes as she whispered, I have given too much blood and water, and I can feel it in my bones. And when Maria and her husband walked to the church with the little girl, the little newborn, snug and sleeping in her arms, they shared a vast silence, a path lacking the company of family and friends, a patronless path one that left them staring wide-eyed into a future where the girl child also walked alone. And as they walked through the church doors towards the baptism font, Maria saw the suffering one, so kind and full of divine patronage, and whispered, You also gave too much blood and water, like I have, yet a holy mother never left you. Then, As if her spoken longing with both prayer and summons, she saw a flash of white and gray rush into the clearing outside the church, and she and her husband gaped. For there was a large sleigh of polished birchwood with horses as impossibly white as snowdrops. Within were three fur-clad maidens. Gray charcoal and cream winter cloud pelts encircling the women like mother wolves in a den. Maria recognized the tallest of them when they alighted from the sleigh and nearly wept. Ah, when a Haldiad smiles prophecy and gifts abundance in a strawberry basket, it should come as no surprise that a lonely girl child should be surrounded by forest maidens, all birch nobility and mother wolf stance at the baptismal font. Nor did Maria feel surprised when the tallest maiden, with eyes that Maria knew well, eyes of bright fern green and mulchy brown, well, these eyes met Maria's own and winked. For the question had been asked, as it always is, what would the goddaughter's name be? 
Masika, said the forest maiden, looking at Marya and smiling. Her name will be Masika. Strawberry, exclaimed those present, for this is what the, the name meant. It was truly an odd name. Yes, repeated the eldest maiden, Masika. And though there was a paltry attempt to argue from Maria's husband and the priest and a presiding village official, the maiden squared her shoulders and repeated, Her name is Masika. And Maria smiled. For with this name, she knew that this little girl, who had waded through blood and water to be kissed by a Haldiat, was destined for something beyond their lonely cottage. And Maria felt a snow-laden wind of thrill when, after the baptism, the maidens cooed and kissed little Masika and promised her to care for her should anything happen. Then they gifted three gold boxes to their goddaughter with a solemnity that touched Maria. Then the maidens leapt into their birchwood sleigh, and the horses and the white-speckled wind and their furs flew into the forest with spirit wolf energy. When a mother gifts blood and water, when she gives of the mineral-rich earth of her heart and hearth and hand, when she gives her bare sternness and wolf-mother publics, it should come as no surprise that a daughter should become a ruddy, frolicking seven-year-old. Yet, on the Shrove Tuesday of Masika's seventh year, as she and mother fashioned the metzik or wild spirit effigy from past summer straw, a gurgling cough seemed to rumble and scour in mother's lungs. Mother and daughter, like every year, sat shoulder to shoulder in mutual love and concentration, making the protective dolls that would stand high on a tree branch overlooking their little homestead. As they soothed and stroked their own hearth and health longings into the dried grass, shaping it into a protective icon, the gurgling cough became a darker presence in mother's bearing, in mother's eyes. And for some months, as the hacking spirit crept and crawled and wormed its way into mother's very bones, Masika did all the visiting healer woman asked and hated herself for being so fearful of the mere wraith breath her mother was becoming. Maria, even in the haze of illness, saw her daughter's fear, brought her close, and finally told Masika the story of her godmothers, of her magic patronage. And when mother became oh so still and silent, Masika helped wash the body that had bore her the body that had given her being. Masika's tears mingled with the washing water and made tiny splotches 
on mother's gray grave clothes. And after mother lay cradled in the earth, Masika felt a silent wind-swept sorrow creep and crawl and worm its way into her heart. And her mind, where the vibrant images of her mother seemed superimposed with the wraith breath she had become. Well, it was too much. Her mother had become like Night Mother, the invisible spinner spirit who spun flax in terror. The orphan story of old, the story of the motherless one unfolds here, rendered more poignant by its wearisome repetition. Father decided to remarry, and Masika, with her strange name and strange patronage, felt his indifference in every unheard remark and forgotten promise. Then, as if her sad longing were both prayer and summons, she saw a flash of white and gray rush into the clearing outside the cottage, and she and her father gaped, for there was a large sleigh of polished birchwood with horses as impossibly white as snowdrops. Within was the tall fur-clad maiden her mother had spoken of, gray charcoal and cream winter cloud pelts encircling her like mother wolf in a den. Masika ran outside to greet them and the maiden kissed her and turned to the father saying, Masika, our little strawberry, must stay with you no longer. You will have another wife and the truth is you will soon be a father and then a grandfather again. Then the maiden turned her eyes of bright fern green and mulchy brown onto the motherless one and said softly, But Masika will not find another mother. Then she said, Masika will come with us, and our gift of the gold boxes will come with her. Now, father protested, sapping out words of affection, syruping promises that his new wife would love Masika like her very own. And when little Strawberry remembered the past year of his silent indifference, she cried out, I want to go with my godmothers. And so it was. Masika was whisked away into the beckoning forest in the sleigh, feeling as if she were nestled with a pack of mother wolves. For the godmother doted on and nuzzled little Strawberry as she huddled and cuddled in the middle of her strong, fur-laden form. When a Haldiyad gifts the encircling, the enfolding of a sacred grove of gnarled oak trees, it should come as no surprise that forest magics of stone and passage should be revealed. Indeed, as Masika was whisked into that grove and she approached a large boulder, something in her settled, caught an inward scent of the maternal. She recognized this from her mother's deathbed confession the little holes in the stone, either natural or bored into the stone by relatives of the dead. In the holes were burnt remnants of an offering fire and lovely fresh milk and grain. This passage to the world of ancestral spirits was lovingly maintained. 
Masika, little strawberry, felt safe in the cyclical embrace of ancestral gifting and giving. Yet the strange passage at the foot of the stone, in that womb darkness and awe hummed, the depths of the earth breathed from its vast diaphragm. Masika hesitated, feeling already the claustrophobia of the unknown and the knitting-together holy power of this passage to the underworld. But in she went, feeling her mother's whisper in her very self, to go, to go. And the grass-covered limestone hatch closed quickly over them, leaving the lawn above undisturbed and in one piece. So Masika was underground. She had expected complete darkness once it closed, but then she turned around to look at her godmother. The light glowed warm and true, and her godmother waited patiently as she gaped at the staircase made of precious stones, like how the walls of the New Jerusalem was described with those beautiful names she could only imagine. Jasper, Jacinth, Sapphire, Topaz, and Ruby. Unable to speak, little Strawberry followed her beckoning godmother down, down, down the stairs, deep into the very heart and guts of Mother Earth. And when the stairs ended, Masika gasped. Here was a verdant courtyard where fruit trees were laden with apples and pears that sang a star-silver nimbus where compositions of heavenly song came from birds of gold and silver. In the middle was an immense glass house. Masika felt a warm hand on her shoulder and looked up into her godmother's face. This is the home of Kvielus, the Maidens of the Rock. And you will learn many things here. You will learn what it means to live and move and have your being. You will learn what it means to be truly clever, Masika, and how to find resources where there are seemingly none. This is your home now. And Masika, until she was 16, learned the hidden ways of rock and earth. She learned to tend to the magic of living things and found the healing of hearth and home in needlework artistry. She learned to not despise what she did not understand. And in the home of the Kvielus, she grew to be tall and wise and strong and courageous. When the eldest maiden of the rock told Masika that she must now leave and seek her fortune in the forest above, the young woman wrapped her arms around her godmother and wept. Masika felt a silent, wind-swept sorrow creep and crawl and worm its way into her heart, and such a familiar, stinging loss emerged. Then she whispered, What have I done? For there was still a neglected and motherless child within that knew this day would come. The eldest maiden hugged her close and said, You have done nothing wrong. 
We just have greater gifts for you now, in the forest of your ancestors, where your own dear mother went burying, where there are those who also need your strength and kindness. And Masika knew the truth of this because she felt her mother's whisper in her very self. So it was arranged, and Masika left the Maidens of the Rock and the earth womb that had nourished her. And with her came two men servants she had never seen before, and a basket with the three gold boxes inside, the same three gold boxes that had been gifted to her at her baptism. And they walked through the palatial pines, whispering against the blue sky, pines that stood like rugged matriarchs, lined and grooved and solid. Masika was in awe of fallen trunks that mothered elegant sprays of fern and curious fungal ripplings of deep black and rich orange, a rotten wood placenta for vibrant green moss. It seemed that all life suckled and fed now. Now, after some time, Masika paused and said, This really is a long way to walk. Where do we get horses in a cart? One servant said to her, They're in one of the boxes. Open it. Masika paused for a moment, looking with doubt at the small gold box in her basket. But she had learned to not despise what she did not understand and opened the box, where there was a smooth, lovely stone. The servant blew on the stone three times and said, Let the four horses stand forward. And there they appeared, beautiful, strong creatures. And oh my, the rush of river-laden air as they were whisked through the forest made Masika laugh out loud. Then, when they stopped to rest the horses, Masika put her hand on her stomach and said, I must go find some berries. And the other manservant said, There is a table and food in one of your boxes. Again, she opened it to find a smooth stone. Again, the servant blew on it three times and said, Covered table, step in front of the dishes. And there appeared a table in that woodland clearing that would have rightly honored any estate, any king with its beautiful bounty. Then, when a rush of birdsong serenaded the bluish twilight and the darkening forest breathed sleep, Masika felt sleepy and made to lay down beside the fire. And one of the servants said, There is a fine bed with pillows in one of your boxes. And so it was, just as before. Masika had been taught in the ways of rock and trees and knew where to find the wise man. As gray dawn yawned meager light into the world and cold mist hovered over the hardy green-yellow grasses, the peaty mud and the deep black marsh pools, Masika and her companions made their way down a strangely dry path, wondering at the mire plants and the antediluvian layers of peat and mud and water. 
for they all breathed antiquity. Masika felt the gurgling, sucking death of it all whisper close to her ear, and she shivered. She knew not to despise what she did not understand, but this place, well, she was sure, held shivering wet souls who had been lured by will-o'-the-wisps to a watery grave. Then she heard a grunt of sorts, a male baritone grunt, like a boar snuffling for acorns, but with syllables, with human utterances. There was mean intent, a kind of corruption of that forest creature whose bulk and power carried all the great hum and substance of the unending forest. One of the servants pointed towards a small shack at the end of the path and said nervously, We must make our way to the wise man quickly. The old man of the forest is violent and cruel, and he is near. So they did, and when they reached the shack and they had knocked on the door, the wise man, with the brevity of wilderness dwellers, ushered them in without a word, sat them down by the fire, and with no introductions he said, You must seek the serpent king, child. You must look into the serpent king's mouth and see the dripping cavern of constant hunger. And here is how you will do it. Go now into the forest with your servants on your four horses. Do not fear when three beasts meet you there, an elk, a wolf, and a bear. Lure them to you and do this. Masaki nodded as he gave her further instructions, and she made for the door with her companions. And before she closed the door, the old man said, Remember, remember your stone, child. Remember the stone. Now, first, an elk emerged from the mist, with a body somehow stately and gangly, and with a canopy of wise antlers. And though it was huge, Masika spoke to it gently and approached it, putting a silk belt around her. Then, from a thicket, there came a wolf as deep gray and white as summer storm clouds, and though it menaced with a sepulchral growl, Masika growled her own lapine lullaby, and approaching it, put a slither strap around it. Finally, a mammoth movement in some bushes, a huff born from bestial belly, heralded the last, a great brown bear. Though its claws could skin her, Masika huffed her own bare nostril intent, speaking to it, and approached it, putting a gold ring on the toe of the bear. The bear looked at her with uncanny, intelligent longing, and licked her hand as if in gratitude. Leaping back into the horse cart, she made the command to ride forward, feeling courageous and certain. When a Haldiad gifts fern green love and the language of living things, it comes as no surprise that the depletion of land and animal feels sharp and stabbing to the soul. As the horses flew across the flatlands, Masike felt a rumble and roar in the strange silence. 
as they cruised past abandoned villages and farms and barns. The rumble and roar colonized the air and the land, its terrible, oppressive monotone trying to fill the void where song and speech and bird call and howl should have been. Yet the emptiness only grew more pronounced, seemed to draw into itself even the memory of playing children, of harvest sweat, of St. John's Day fire, and birch twig massage and saunas. After three days of searching for a single living soul, the rumble and roar began to shake the earth and batter ram the ears. She was getting closer. And when the horses suddenly stopped, huffing and whinnying in fear, Masika's eyes were drawn to a large hill with pine trees on its crown. Those pine trees shook and trembled despite it being a still day. And Masika's gut clenched as the armor-scaled, triangular head, with a great golden crown, a crown as large as a barn, appeared over the tops of the trees. It rose and rose, and the snake's eyes, like the vault of an alien heaven, fixated on Masika and the horses. The triangle head then opened slow, slow, so that the tendons and muscles of jaw and hunger extended. And that dripping cavern of unending hunger stood wide open. And before Masika could gather herself and act, the serpent king launched itself down the hill and made its way towards them. She leapt out of the cart and ran, calling to her horses, screaming for them to come, to come, but they only whinnied in terror, stomping as if they had forgotten to run. And Masika ran, looking over her shoulder, when she heard the horses shriek. Never had she heard such a sound, and their shrieks were cut off as the serpent king closed his craving hollow over those massive steeds, swallowed them, as if they were mere children. Masika turned and watched as the muscles of the snake worked, contracted to push the horses down into its gigantic form. The great snake was still, and Masika knew that once it stirred again, she could not outrun it. Ah, do not forget the stone, she remembered the old man had said. And so she took a stone from a gold box with trembling hands. She spoke to her to the stone, whispered reminders of caressing air on its smooth surface, reminded the stone of all the ages of man in which it had gazed in stillness at the expansive dome, at the expansive sky of dancing air spirits. And as Masika spoke alchemy, the stone remembered, and wings burst forth, and the stone became a northern eagle, horse-sized and shrieking for flight. And Masika leapt onto the eagle's back, and they soared and circled above the serpent king, in whom there was now a strange, convulsive trembling.
For seven days, Masika remained on the northern eagle, who never tired and warmed her as they soared. They slept at night on the edge of clouds, and with the other stone they lacked nothing. And for seven days, the serpent king writhed and roared and whimpered, the muscles of its great body contracting and convulsing. For seven days, the snake made the earth shake as it arched and thumped and flung its agonized bulk against the ground. Masika remembered her father writhing in the same way once when he had eaten something bad and his stomach had extended without food poison. And on the morning of the seventh day, Masika awoke, nestled into the feathers of her cloud-perched eagle, and looked at the earth below. The serpent king was still, as still as death, its mouth gaping open as if it had died in one great choking moment of agony. Who can describe Masika's great wonder as the northern eagle brought her down to the top of a hill, and in a burst of neighing and galloping joy, the horses emerged from the serpent's mouth. Could it be, Masika wondered, that the alchemy of abundance, of always there being enough, more than enough, had this poisoned the serpent's terrible hunger? For the horses were children of stone, a gift from the rock maidens. As she watched this miracle and wondered, she suddenly heard footsteps behind her and turned to see her to her great astonishment. An old man with a leather strap, a woman with a blue silk belt around her neck, and a young man wearing the exact gold ring she had put on the finger of the bear. And all three had such noble bearing and wore proud royal suit. Before Masika could even greet them, the young man, with a reverent, soft voice, said, Thank you, Masika. Little Strawberry, dear, brave girl, you saved us from a long prison term. And in wonder, Masika listened to the tale. Seven hundred years ago, seven hundred years, long years, the old man was king, and the serpent king came saw and swallowed, devoured the country's subjects and enchanted the royal family. Then, Masika's ears perked at the final sad note of the tale. But my three daughters escaped, said the king. Where they are, I do not know. Perhaps they slowly disintegrated in the belly of that beast. Ah, thought Masika to herself. Three daughters, three maidens. But since she did not know if her godmothers were indeed those maidens, she remained silent. When a Haldiad gifts a girl with alchemic language and coaxing magic, it should come as no surprise that a stone can become a chariot with six horses. But the newly liberated royal family were still astonished when Masika spoke to a stone and did exactly that. And off they went, 
Masika with the royal family, through the chanting woodland and under a blue sky with clouds that whirled like village girls soaring on the notes of a lively fiddle. They shouted and sang and clapped for all the feeling of fern unfurling restoration. And what was this? Three maidens standing in a field? And oh my, when the rock maidens, when Masika's godmother stood amidst the singing green of a meadow and waved at them happily, the songs became louder. And when the maidens got into the chariot, there were tears and embraces, and the chant of blossoming reunion vaulted into the sky and twirled with the cloud maidens. Indeed, all was restored. Masika married the king's son, and when her time came, she was a queen who knew and revered the hidden ways of rock and earth. She tended to the magic of living things and protected the healing of hearth and home throughout the kingdom. She knew to not despise what she did not understand, and the people loved her, for she was tall and wise and strong and courageous. The gold boxes, however, were never seen again. Perhaps they lay in wait for those who tenderly wash bloody faces in the wilderness, those who trust the forest and who learn the ways of the rock maidens and their hidden blessings. Hello everyone, Nicole Schmidt here. Next up in our folklore journey is Lithuania. To help me with the research and hosting costs, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. Some of the perks include patrons-only ebooks of episode scripts and scans of my research notes, and of course more details about what's available for the different tiers is on patreon.com. And just a final reminder to please consider joining my upcoming Story Heritage webinar on power and powerlessness. Again, the aim is to explore the wisdom and insights of world folklore surrounding this fundamental human experience. So we'll listen to stories from around the world and consider the, the wisdom and insights of those stories. If you want to explore our world storytelling heritage, to get inspiration for your own creative life and experience the therapeutic powers of story, go to www.mythosstorytelling.com and click on contact where you can register your interest. Again, that is www.mythosstorytelling.com. Please do take a few minutes or make a note in your phone to register your interest. It really helps to know whether or not this is something listeners are interested in and how viable the idea is. Thank you for listening. And again, next time it will be Lithuania.